This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. We're kicking off season three today um, with me handing over the mic to um, my colleague and Adamantine secret weapon, Ann Carto, Director of Client Strategy and Sustainability at our company. So Anne's going to be interviewing me about a series I recently wrote that lays the scaffolding for how game-changing leaders can understand how we work with our clients and partners to help them pivot from disrupted to disruptor. So we thought this was a good way to kick off season three because that's what we're going to be doing is talking to leaders about this pivot. And sometimes it's important to return to these basic ideas that underlie um, how we work uh, with our clients and how we convey our ideas out into the world. You can find more about these essays and our show notes on our Energy Things website. And I want to welcome you to my discussion with Ann Cardo. I'm so excited to be uh, with Tisha Schuler, our fearless leader at Adamantine Energy. Um, and I think it's a really special day because we get to get back to the basics. You know, every week we hear from Tisha about um, what's going on in the world related to these principles that we follow at Adamantine. Um, and now we get to talk through those. So I think it's going to be really valuable to our listeners. So thank you, Tisha, for coming to your own podcast. And they, thank you for having me on my own podcast. <laughs> Excited. Um, well, awesome. So let's jump in and, and get through some of these basic um, foundational ideas that you talk through in these essays um, that we are rolling out shortly. Um, you wrote the foundation pieces for the Both True audience, which cover a lot of the same ground you cover in your book and in your writing. Why did you think that was a good idea? It's interesting. I keep finding myself in the same conversations because there's a lot of framework thinking that people who've worked in the oil and gas industry their whole careers have. Um, many of us are scientists and engineers, and we come to this idea of our job is to provide energy, the energy the world requires. And so if I'm in a conversation with an oil and gas leader who isn't familiar with Adam and Teen's work, a really early question is something like, well, don't we just need to explain to them? Don't we need to educate them? And then I find myself rolling back to the beginning. Well, okay, why doesn't this thinking work that we're just gonna go out and educate the public? So I wanted to write the foundation pieces for a couple of reasons. One, so people who are new to Adam and Teen could say, why does she keep referring to this thing of education doesn't work as an example? Um, or the dueling mindsets, what are the dueling mindsets? And, and we can talk about any of these things that we want to today. Um, but really, I also realized if I'm starting these conversations over again and again, probably our audiences and our, our clients are, they're within their companies being asked these same questions. Well, why don't we just educate them? Well, why don't we just go out there and explain? Why don't we just lobby? Um, and so that's why I wrote the foundation pieces. So we all have a place to go back and set a new framework of thinking, one that introduces the idea of dueling mindsets, that both of these things are true and that there are limits to education. And we have to approach leading into the energy future from a totally different mindset. And that's uh, from a different foundation. So that leads into the foundation pieces. 
so smart to lay the foundation again. I, I think it'll be really helpful to people. And, you know, you and I travel quite a bit and, and meet with groups and we still hear that, that, you know, if we just educate them and so many resources go towards um, these fact sheets and research projects that do have their place, I think we agree. Um, but this might actually help people breathe a sigh of relief of, oh, I just did this year-long campaign, education campaign, and I, the needle didn't move much. And so you can help explain why. So that's really helpful. Um, and of course, we have to talk about um, that you base a lot of your work on the idea that two things can be true at the same time. Um, now that I know about this, I look at a lot of things in my life this way. Um, but why work with a dichotomy like you do? It's so funny. Like you said, once you accept in one arena that both of these things can be true at the same time, suddenly it appears everywhere in your life, from your relationships to your parenting to, of course, uh, politics constantly. So I really came to this idea of both things being true out of desperation because I, too, was completely um, convinced that as an industry, we really needed to get out there and educate people and be ambassadors, which like you said, is true, but it has its limits. And so I started really thinking about how do we understand the anti-fossil fuel mindset? And what this brought me to is this idea that there is a huge portion of the population, probably more than half in the U S and Canada and Western Europe, that believe that climate is the moral issue of our time. And, and understanding and thinking about this mindset really got me um, in a different uh, mental space to think about, okay, how do we engage with this mindset differently? Because they believe that it's time to get off fossil fuels today and we could already be there if we weren't being manipulated by politicians and, and fossil fuel companies. And so the more I explored this mindset of the anti-fossil fuel person and really understanding that they're coming from a place of good and um, good intentions and wanting to do the best for the future. And then at the same time, we have the reality of the world that we, the energy is the lifeblood of our lives, that we're going to need a lot more energy and that fossil fuels still provide 84% of global energy. And I realized if I can hold both these ideas at the same time, the reality of the complexity of the energy system, energy demand, and a whole bunch of people, maybe a majority, think we need to be done with fossil fuels and we can be done with fossil fuels, then I have a new playing field on which to work. And actually, it was shockingly freeing to say, okay, if both of these things are true at the same time, we need a completely revolutionary approach to engaging the public to understand the importance of oil and gas, to think about how we're creating the energy future, and to create new kinds of conversations. So holding dichotomies is not just an imperative for us. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to, to engage differently, have different tools, think about the future differently, and get out of this, this um, black and white thinking that actually has bogged us down and limited our options for engaging the public. And then the last thing I'll say is I, I, I think I should have an honorary PhD in psychology because I spend a lot of time trying to understand how people make decisions and why people have these biases and why we get so entrenched in these contradictory worldviews. And what I learned from this reading is that thinking about dichotomies is actually a more evolved form of thinking. And as you, as you mentioned, and as you start to, to see this throughout your life, you realize, oh, you have a lot more 
complexity and all the decisions we make in our life. And often two things are true at the same time. And so this, this more sophisticated way of thinking opens up a different level of conversation for us to have with our stakeholders, with our kids, with our employees. And so it really is foundational that two things can be true at the same time for this work. And it's really helpful in practice. And that's something that you taught me early on in my career when um, we were working at Koga was if we can listen to the stakeholders, we just open doors. And so if we don't outright say, I'm right, you're wrong, only one of these things is true, um, we can really build relationships that are enduring and that are solution oriented. Um, so totally agree, that's very helpful explanation. And um, you mentioned the fossil free mindset, and I want to tease that out just a little bit um, with these two energy mindsets. We know them very well, um, the fossil free uh, mindset and sort of the lifeblood mindset. Um, and with the fossil free mindset, why doesn't education work for them? It's, it's such a great point. And it's, I think it's probably best um, uh, talked about through this lens of um, behavioral psychology, which is many of us, especially if we're scientists, we love to go to science to figure out how to unravel these mysteries. And there is a ton of data that show that people make decisions based on their identity and their values. And each of us do this every day when we choose the news sources we listen to, which research studies we find credible um, because we take in information that already aligns with our values and with our identity. And so when we go into an environment of people with a different mindset, and so for example, when we worked at Koga and we would find ourselves in these community meetings with a bunch of scared parents, for example, They're, they feel scared, they have been told that this oil and gas development and this terrifying thing called fracking is gonna contaminate their groundwater. And uh, we come in and say, let us show you some science, let us show you some data. And we're just dismissed out of hand because we're not trustworthy. And what we're saying doesn't align with their values. And, this, and the science even goes one step further, which is to tell us that when people are emotionally charged about an issue, and, and I think we all agree that climate and the future of energy are really, really emotionally charged in our society right now. Um, when people are emotionally charged and you try to provide science or fact-based information, people double down on their original um, position. It's called the backfire effect. And this explains a lot. And, and you and I certainly experienced this firsthand where you go in and you say, no, no, I would say I'm a geologist and I'm a mother too. And let me show you. And essentially um, groups would become even more enraged and it was completely mysterious. Like why are they becoming even angrier? And it's because science tells us that people take in information that aligns with what they already believe. And so for co companies and the industry as a whole, we go out there and we try usually two things. One, let us educate you, let us tell you about things. Um, but if people already have um, a bias against the industry, they're just gonna one, reject it out of hand or two, become more entrenched. And then the other thing we do, which hopefully we'll talk a little bit more later, is we, we make these sort of arguments like, you're, you, you know, you're, your perspective is foolish. Like, let me explain why you're wrong. 
um, which our supporters love, but our detractors are, are less convinced by. And so what we really have to understand in as a foundational piece is that there are complete limits to education, the role of education. And instead our focus is on building trust and building relationship in order to create a space where later education will be, will be appropriate and, and have the potential to be viable. Exactly, you're creating the space. That's, that's all where we need to get started, totally. Um, in your second essay, I wanna talk in detail about what you cover. So in the second essay, you lay out three disruptors, um, some disruptions that um, the oil and gas industry is facing. Um, and in your work, what have you found of those three um, that get the warmest reception? And maybe we should cover what those disruptors are, but um, how, do you, how do you think, which, which gets the warmest reception? Yeah, so the, oh, I love this question because the, um, so the three disruptors are the changing demographics of the public, which really affect our, our political um, and, and public risk. Um, environmental activism now is a mainstream business risk. And then the third is expectations around racial equity and justice being enduring. So we lay out these disruptors because it's another way of setting the table for a conversation about the future of energy that's different, that breaks the mold of how we normally engage. And so if we looked at what's happening in society writ large and we ask, how can we engage differently? These are the three things we look at. So the, the warmest reception, actually it might not be that, but the most shocked reception is the rise of the millennials. So we've been talking about millennials for a decade, but millennials are turning 40 this year and they dominate the population in raw numbers through 2050. And um, because the oil and gas industry is largely led by baby boomers and in a few cases by Gen Xers, which is my generation, you know, people in their uh, 40s and 50s, um, and then a couple, you know, millennial leaders also in the oil and gas industry, it's actually super surprising to one, understand that millennials for the first time rivaled baby boomers in their voting a potential voting block in 2020. And then to understand that as we engage with, with stakeholders, investors, regulators, elected officials, more often than not, we're engaging with millennials. And now millennials make up 40% of our workforce. So that gets the most uh, shocked reception and inspires the most immediate action because this is something tangible that especially now while unemployment is low, companies need to be thinking about how are we going to retain, how are we going to mobilize, how are we going to use to best advantage this secret weapon we have, which is the millennials. The 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam Mateen's latest white paper gives you our top line proxy season insights. Download it today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now back to the show. Yeah, I would say in the past couple months, that is um, when I've been speaking to different groups, that is the one that they really feel they need to address the retaining of millennials, especially in this, in this job market when there is jobs. And um, it's, I think that everyone is ready to get started on that. Um, and I will say for anyone listening, if you don't follow our work, we did an entire report on um, millennials and how to empower and retain millennials in the oil and gas workforce. A lot of good data-driven uh, recommendations in there. So recommend that. Um, 
of the disruptors, which one was, do you think um, your audiences are the most maybe confused by or the hardest to get started or can't quite wrap their head around? Yeah, the, the most challenging one is companies addressing racial equity and justice. And it's not surprising because our industry, like many businesses, is behind where we should be on creating diversity, equity, and inclusion as a core feature of our company cultures. Um, and further, we have huge influences in the communities in which we operate. So we actually have an opportunity, and I would argue an obligation, to engage in our communities in a way that creates enduring equity, enduring prosperity. Um, and these are uh, these create amazing advantages to the companies as well, to be viable community me members, to be civic leaders, but also for creating pipelines for recruiting and opportunities for employee retention. So racial equity and justice is tough. It, it, it's ultimately the work of each of us as individuals embracing that this is a lifelong journey. It's leaders understanding that this isn't a task list. This is a deep cultural shift. And that this is part of our role as civic leaders into the future. Our companies have so much ability to influence how our society leads into the energy future and creates long-term prosperity and equity. And so this is an area that I love working with companies with, but they do find it the most baffling because this is the first time they really are understanding that this is a deep cultural shift in the same way that addressing climate and decarbonization is a deep cultural shift. So in our foundation pieces, we aren't proposing that companies get their marketing campaign together. We're proposing that companies look at the world fundamentally differently and figure out how they're gonna lead into the future. Right, because it's, you know, you can recruit as many people as you want, but will they stay in a culture that they don't feel like they belong or include um, or aren't included there? So totally agree. It's it's hard work and necessary work. Mm -hmm. um, of the three disruptors you talked about, which one is moving the fastest and, and we really need to address quickly? So this is the, the, the shocking one. Given COVID, and, and I'll, I'll love you to weigh in on your thoughts on this. When COVID hit, I thought, oh, companies are going to get an extra year or two on this climate path. We had been arguing for a couple of years. You got to get your act together. You have to address climate head on. You have to set decarbonization aspirations. When COVID hit, I thought, oh, everyone's going to get a pass because um, usually when there's an economic crisis or a political crisis of any kind, environmental concerns take a back seat. Well, it was the opposite. COVID was going full steam ahead and investors began driving demands of their portfolio companies to align their business strategies with the goals of Paris. So this was super shocking, um, made our work quite straightforward in the sense that if BlackRock, the largest asset investor in the world, usually one of the top three investors in publicly held oil and gas companies, start saying, align your strategy, companies are going to start aligning their strategy. So I've been surprised at the pace this is moving. I've been um, in, in some ways delighted by uh, the way companies are responding. Okay, our investors want it. Let's do it. It takes it immediately out of the uh, political battles of the past and puts it into the investor demands of the present. And so it's been really fun to see how companies say, okay, our investors want it. Let's get, let's get to work. What, what, what's been your experience of that in the, in the last year, Anne? Yeah. I mean, I think the pandemic was really interesting, especially um, for 
my generation is when we heard that the air quality got so much better when we were all in with COVID, it was, you know, a light went off for a lot of people. Um, and then once BlackRock really um, gave out their guidance, which, which in turn is um, making the SEC consider what they're going to do on this, then it got to our boomers when we started talking SEC. So it's interesting the different um, factors here. And then, you know, my social media with my friends blew up in the climate, um, the UN report that came out. And so there's a lot of things ticking away at this that have led us to be working with pretty small and even private companies on the task force on climate related financial disclosures, TCFD. If you told me a year and a half ago that we would have these companies working on TCFD, I would have thought you were crazy. So um, I agree, it's, right. it's really sped up and, and um, become very important in, in all eyes, I think. I'm curious one more perspective from you, Anne, because you're a millennial who's very active among your peers in the oil and gas industry. And my observation from the sidelines, the Gen X sidelines, uh, where we sit watching the boomers and the millennials get, you know, get, get things done. Um, it's my observation that millennials who work in the oil and gas industry are becoming impatient as well. So it's not just investors and federal regulators, as you mentioned, but that our employees are actually saying, hey, if I'm not going to work for a company that's leading into the energy future, I'm going to go work in tech or or, or clean tech or clean energy. What's your, is that, is that uh, wishful thinking on my part or, or selective observation? What's your experience of that? I think that a lot of it has to do with where said millennial is. Um, there's still certainly <laughs> right. places um, that of our, where the oil and gas industry works that they're holding the line. Millennials are still similar to the boomers that um, some of them, I will say there's all ages are getting on the energy future bandwagon. Um, but it's it's interesting to see some of these factions grow. But I would say of the peers that I work with in places like Denver, like larger cities, yes. And, and we did an informal survey when we did the um, millennial report where we asked companies, you know, what are they looking for most in company strategy? And they said to lead into um, working on climate strategy and not being the slow to move, slow to innovate um, industry that they had known in the past. And, and so I totally agree. I think that um, there's a lot of job opportunities out for millennials. And I think some people that I have talked to directly are, are wondering, should I get out now? Should I ride this out a little bit and see what happens? Um, or are we all gonna need new jobs at the same time? And there's others that, that know we're going to need oil and gas for a long time, but mm -hmm. maybe they wanna pick a company that they think is gonna lead through this and um, you know, lead through M&A activity, I don't know. Mm, it's a really interesting point that we used to say, oh, millennials just job hop, but millennials are reaching the prime of their, uh, of their family creation, of their civic and economic leadership. And so it's interesting, millennials, again, I shouldn't speak of millennials as one group, but, but overwhelmingly we see data that millennials are choosing uh, companies and industries for the long haul at this point. So that's a real pivot in, in the career cycle and the way we as an industry need to be thinking about retaining, I would argue, our most valuable workforce um, as we go into this energy transition leadership period. Absolutely. I think that at this point, millennials are looking for 
security and they'd like to be somewhere that they they feel safe so I agree yeah good point um, so let's talk about some of the game-changing activities that you talk about in um, the third essay that you know similar to retaining employees um, but the, the game-changing activities that leaders should embrace um, of those maybe line those out again too um, and tell us which one of those gets the warmest reception from your audiences Sure. So um, because we wouldn't want to just have disruptors and not say this is how we we, we can act, we can be proactive. The, the game changing recommendations are to put millennials at the center of your strategy, to share aspirations with the public for a decarbonizing energy future explicitly, and then um, to lead, to become civic leaders as companies, to think of society's challenges as our company's obligation to participate. And the same way we participate in responding to a natural, uh, natural disaster, but now on more of a national or global scale, looking at the challenges of climate, the challenges of racial equity, and saying, we play a really key part in our region, in our city, and how are we gonna participate as civic leaders? So th those are the three. And then um, the, the one that, that companies really, uh, respond to easily is civic leadership. Um, although civic leadership at the scale that we propose is again, another deep cultural shift for companies. Because for a long time, being a successful energy company meant you were largely in invisible. You weren't uh, creating a splash and people were grateful for the, the economy, the prosperity, the contributions uh, that we made to communities. But now civic leadership requires something more essentially looking based on the size of your company and where you're located at, what are the key issues in our region and how are we going to jump in in a way that leads into the energy transition, supports creating enduring prosperity, participates in generating equity. Uh, so these are, these are really, I think, um, hypothetically easy for companies to imagine, but it comes back to this more uh, deep cultural shift from being reactive to the disruptors to deciding how to engage in a really proactive way. Yeah, I, I would agree that I think that has had the warmest reception. I think that we saw some leaders of smaller public companies in the oil and gas industry really step up in the pandemic, in the racial justice um, movement. And so I would agree. I think I'm excited to see, not that I want more issues to come up, but I'm excited to see the leadership that some of these companies embrace. Um, so of those three, and I, I imagine I know the answer to this, um, which one is the most confounding for um, leaders? So companies are, um, off, company leaders are often willing to say, we uh, we agree that we want a decarbonizing energy system or we want to reduce pollution. But most oil and gas companies are led by engineers. And I have had many a challenging conversation where the engineer says, we will not make a decarbonization target unless we can do the math on how we're going to get there. And we know that we don't actually have the technology to imagine a zero carbon energy future, especially when we're looking at the emissions of our products in addition to our operations. Now, um, so that's the most challenging. What I would like to proactively say to those leaders at this moment, because I have the microphone, is 
um, investors like BlackRock have made clear that they expect their portfolio companies to set aspirations, even though the technology doesn't exist. Um, and I think we're going to see this coming out in some form of federal financial regulation as well. And that's because this dominant fossil free mindset does believe that in order to achieve these radical transformations of our economy, we need our most uh, talented business minds working on the problem and that companies will work on the problem if they've set these stretch goals. So this is part of the new expectations of business leaders is to be aspirational in your goal setting. And so our historic uh, commitment to not making promises we don't know for sure we can keep is at odds with this new visionary mindset of creating businesses that are leading into an energy future that we can't yet define. It is really difficult. And I've been talking to groups about this as well. And, and to be honest, I had someone chase me down the hallway and say, net zero isn't real. Um, <laughs> and that was eye-opening um, because, you know, I, I get it that, that there, we don't know what the carbon capture fairy is, right? But we have mm -hmm. to tell people that we're at the table. Um, and it's, it's a hard um, thought to get your mind around. So it, it really I, I is, and it's totally anyone. at odds. Right. It's totally at odds with this idea of like, I have to build a pipeline from A to B and I'm not going to say I can get across that river if I can't. Mm -hmm. I, I need to know for a fact I can get across that river. And this, this as a metaphor, it doesn't work for the expectations of this moment because the, the, the A to B like magic happens here section of the project map is very uncomfortable for us. But this is part of how companies are going to have to shift their organizational structure and culture to be thinking uh, differently about these things. Like who's the innovative team? Who are the minds who are on the to be determined portion of the plan? That's gonna be a whole different way of approaching this kind of planning for the energy future. Yeah, we've seen a few companies put together these innovation teams or target work groups. And I'd say from the companies we work with, the most successful have been ones that really feel like there's interest from the top at finding these solutions, mm -hmm. finding things that we can say publicly and having the resources shifted to them. So it's not just a work group that's all talk, but that there's going to be some resources given to them. And, and I think that those, we're gonna see a divide of companies that are doing this the right way and companies that aren't. I love that you mentioned that because um, as you mentioned at Adam and team, we become big proponents of this idea of setting up innovation teams, giving them tasks and then giving them accountability at a very high level to the CEO or to the board so that there's a, there's a sense of um, empowerment and accountability and then ultimately the resources to get this done. And I would add what's obvious to us but might not be obvious to all our listeners is you gotta have millennials at that table. One, they're psyched to be included. And two, they are going to be in these jobs when we have to execute these solutions. So there's a whole different level of accountability uh, for the energy future and for the company at that, at that point. And I think that's, a, that's really important that we be thinking about, if we're thinking at 20-year solutions, we need to have people at the table who are going to be working in 20 years. So to your point, do you think of, of the three game-changing activities that you've laid out that companies are embracing the millennial workforce as 
the fastest? Is that the one that is moving the fastest? Because I think that they are putting millennials in these innovation teams. Yes and no. So I, I think that companies are getting their head, leaders are getting their head around, non-millennial leaders are getting their head around the idea <laughs> that it's time to put millennials at the table. What I have observed is that it's challenging. If you, if a company creates, for example, a shadow board of millennials, there's going to be some opinions and there's going to be some big suggestions that challenge the status quo assumptions from the vision of the company to the culture. And so what we really need is not just to put millennials at the most important tables, but now be ready to create that loop of responsiveness. And that's the piece that um, it's going to have to happen because I don't think we're going to tolerate an exodus of millennials. We're going to, we're going to respond with empowering millennials, but we are encouraging our clients to get ahead of that and really create a responsive loop And what I love is that um, anyone who sits on the sidelines of governance and critique, you know, it's easy to critique the current executive team and the current board. But once we bring people into governance, they have the burden of governing themselves, of managing the trade-offs of the profit and the future. And, And so the other really important outcome of bringing millennials into governance is that now they have this to balance the same challenges, except they have a longer view. And I think that's important for for, uh, both millennial employee perspectives, but also for our accountability to new ideas. I totally agree. This is an interesting point that we've been bringing up with our team internally at Adamantine because you know, we are hiring people that are very intelligent and want to change the world and want to solve climate change today. Um, but since you and I have worked internally at some of these companies with these companies, we understand that there's constraints to what you can do. So I agree. It's, it's not that you need to bring in millennials to take your job. It's bringing them along <laughs> to understand how a company is managed and to improve the management of the company um, so that they, they can be a part of it in the future and help. Um, really interesting. I like that. Well, Tisha, thank you so much for um, joining us on your podcast today. Uh, I think that this was really helpful to lay the foundation. Um, if you could have the audience leave with one thing um, that you'd like them to know about the foundational essays and why they happened, I'd love for you to share. Oh, well, and thank you for hosting me on, on the Energy Things podcast. I love being a guest on your show. And um, the what I really want our audience to know is that we're trying to support deep cultural change within companies. So if you work within a company and you're buying into this idea that the oil and gas industry needs to pivot from disrupted to disruptor, we're, we are working to provide you resources. So the foundation pieces are there to help clarify your thinking, to help you create inroads within your own organization. And we always want your feedback. We learn from our clients and our thinking is always evolving as the situation out in the world is evolving. So you're a part of our growth and you're a part of the of creating the industry of the future. And so the foundation pieces are just one tool in your toolbox as we transform the world as we know it. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Anne for taking the hosting mic and leading the conversation. It's really fun to be on the other side of the podcast conversation. I always love talking to millennial leaders in the oil and gas industry. And Anne uh, provides a unique, uh, refreshing 
perspective that's so important for game-changing leaders to be exposed to. I'm interested what you think about this podcast and our um, foundation pieces. So reach out to me and let us know at energythinks.com backslash podcast. As we kick off season three, it would be a huge help for other oil and gas leaders to find our podcast if you take a moment and rate us. I want to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Gage, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.